you're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. You're about to hear opinions that you may like. Then again, you might hear some that offend you. We don't apologize for that. This is American Viewpoints with Mike Ferguson. What an ugly couple of weeks. Historic couple of weeks, but ugly nonetheless. You know, maybe the riots at the U.S. Capitol and the historic impeachment of President Donald Trump, I'm talking about the second one, maybe those are a result of the ugly aspects of our politics and our discourse, if you can call it that, in our society. I'm Mike Ferguson. Thank you for making American Viewpoints part of your weekend. There is also some confusion amid all the conflict, and part of that goes to our most important document, or at least one of those most important documents in this country, and that's the First Amendment to the Constitution. We're finding out that we may have questions as to whether or not there are limits, and if so, where are they? I'm joined now by Dr. John Inazu. He is a law professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and among his books is uh, Confident Pluralism, and you've seen his writing in The Atlantic and USA Today and The Washington Post. And uh, John, good to talk to you again. Appreciate you being back on the program. So many angles and so many conflicts, and some of these are kind of new because it involves social media, and political speech. I mean, this is a lot to keep up with. Yeah, lots to talk about, Mike. It's great to be back with you. And and I think, uh, you know, I appreciate the willingness to unpack it a bit because part of the problem we're seeing right now is a bunch of hot takes without a lot of nuance. Yeah, imagine that in this Twitter world. (laughs) Yeah. Let me start with that uh, political speech aspect of this. Both sides, and I'm not asking you to take a side on whether you think the imp- the impeachment vote was correct or not, unless you want to. But when we look at the First Amendment, when we look at political speech, one side says President Trump, in this case, incited violent and criminal behavior. But for months, we've had the conservative side accusing Democrats of inciting violence or supporting it or encouraging it when you look at uh, connections to, for instance, you know, rioting and looting that have come out of uh, protests around the country. This is a messy area, but the question comes down to does political speech have limits even with our First Amendment? Right. And it's a, it's a super important question. And I think we want to think of it through a couple of different lenses. We can think about the legal lens, the political lens, and the moral lens. And context matters here too, Mike. And so the fact that the speech was proximate to this constitutionally prescribed liturgy uh, that had to do with the peaceful transition of power really matters. It's, you know, it's different than a a summer protest, even if the actions inspired look similar Uh, from a, from a legal perspective, incitement doctrine is, is very deferential to speech and expression and with good reason, because we want to allow protests and dissent to happen. Uh, And it's very difficult to, ascribe legal liability for what someone says prior to bad acts. From a political perspective here, I think the context matters. And then from a moral perspective too. And and so one can look at the situation and see, yes, there should be political or moral consequences without suggesting that that the legal doctrine should change or anything like that. 
I spoke to a, an attorney over the last week, and he said, I personally believe that some of these politicians, President Trump included, and some on the left, are responsible, at least partially, for some of the things that happened. And he specifically mentioned President Trump and the riots at the Capitol. He said, but as an attorney, I would never want to have to be tasked with winning that case in court because you're, you could be stepping on the First Amendment. You know, that's exactly right. And, and, and with implications for all kinds of other contexts, we, we've learned these lessons from McCarthyism, from civil rights protests in the 1960s that, that encountered restrictions and the hard fought breathing space and protections that the First Amendment gives us should give us pause about legal and criminal responsibilities here. But I would agree that there are certainly political consequences that could follow. We're visiting with uh, Dr. John Inazu from uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And, and John, another confusing area is going to be the digital side of this with social media, obviously a very popular platform parlor that's popular among conservatives. Now, as we're talking, is off the Internet at this point, and they're arguing that it is a big tech collusion to get rid of either competition or just get rid of speech that uh, these other companies don't like. We're talking about Apple and Google and some of those. Is there a case to be made that even though this is all in the private sector, that there is a First Amendment implication or did Parler just get burned by contract law and uh, getting online through Google? Yeah, so there's no, the First Amendment law here is pretty clear under what's called the state action doctrine. The First Amendment, Congress shall make no law, applies to government actors and restricts government action. It does not touch churches, private organizations, including social media companies. It just doesn't touch the private sector. And this is where Senator Hawley, for example, is just off base to claim that the First Amendment says otherwise. However, there are real concerns here about the monopolistic power of especially big tech companies. And functionally, when those companies start to provide and uh, secure the public square or the public forum that used to be provided by government, then I think we have to ask some very hard theoretical questions about whether they have too much power and how it can be limited. But I think those questions, they can't start with current First Amendment doctrine because it just doesn't get you there. What about the argument that they have special protections in uh, the communications law, therefore they have some First Amendment responsibility or liability, for lack of a better term. I know that's not the correct legal term, but do they have some duty to adhere to the First Amendment by receiving protections from the law? I don't, I mean, I don't think so. I think there are lots of private entities that are, that benefit from various legal protections that, that do not come with correlative responsibilities and as a legal matter. Now, as a a civic matter or a moral matter, and I've, you know, I've been privy to some internal conversations with some of these tech companies, and I, they're, they're trying to figure out, well, what are their own limits? And if, if not the First Amendment, then what replaces it? Uh, and, and so there's an internal, uh, I, I think, civic conversation that has to happen, but it's not yet a legal one. Uh, and and if, it, if it is going to be a legal one, we have to do a lot of revisioning of what that means. Is that going to be similar to the situation with YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all of these deleting and banning President Trump from uh, being on their platforms? Because that's clearly limiting his access to his audience, but it's not a, a public thing. It's a private thing. And that's one of the accusations is they are restricting his right to speak. Right. And, you know, that's just the question of power and context and how we're going to sort this out. But let me give you another analogy to think about. I mean, if, you, if you're the 
pastor of a, the biggest church in a small town. And that's the platform where people have effective communications and network and message. You as the pastor have the right to say who gets to come and, and, and have the platform and who doesn't. And we would be rightfully concerned if the government came in and said, no, the first amendment actually restricts you pastor from saying who gets to speak. And, and so uh, the context and the power dynamic matter, but they don't answer the question. And that's a different argument than whether or not they should or should not have done from an ethical perspective on that. I just want to kind of go back to the way I understand what you're saying. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the more power, I mean, we would be naive to suggest that these massive tech companies don't, don't have tremendous power. They, I mean, they're effectively the new public square and it matters uh, to people's lives and to people's discourse and to the spread of ideas, but there's not yet a functional legal doctrine to constrict them. Okay, let me go back in the last minute or so that we've got. You mentioned Senator Josh Hawley of of, uh, Missouri, and he said that Simon & Schuster's cancellation of his book deal was, in his words, a direct assault on the First Amendment because they specifically canceled the book deal based on his political actions and his decision to challenge some of the electoral vote slates from different states. Does that even come close to being a First Amendment issue? Not at all. And I actually think Senator Hawley knows that. I mean, he wants to make a, a forward-leaning argument that big publishers and big tech should have more constraints on them. I think it's fine to wish for that argument and try to make it, but he, but he knows full well that the First Amendment does not reach a book publisher. And I, and I think it's, a, it's, it's not very responsible to be spreading that kind of a claim uh, in an unnuanced way on social media. All right. I know you're following all these closely, uh, your social media. I'm sure you'll be writing about it as well. If people want to keep up with what you're writing, how do they do it? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I am on Twitter at John and Ozzy. That's probably the best way to uh, be in touch and uh, um, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And you can look John up as well uh, on the Washington University in St. Louis Law School. I really appreciate the time today, John. Thanks, Mike. Well, now remember all the way back to that time immediately after 9-11. Those who objected to one part of the nation's new war on terror, they were dismissed. They were even ridiculed for taking issue with the no-fly list in that creation. But were they right about it being abused? Recent events are raising those questions again. We're going to talk about it just ahead right here on American Viewpoints. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 